In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, the Apostle Paul writing, he said, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. In that one scripture, we have the order of the church, the order of the New Testament church. And just like these scriptures here, we find Paul's salutation rolling out before us orders of positions. Let's read these verses 1 through 6. It says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with the power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. He's rolling out these positions with all of this doctrinal, theological, and practical brilliance that Paul puts into this. These words are really setting the tone for the entire letter. And in this greeting, Paul identifies who he is, his calling, his position. He identifies who God is. He identifies who Christ is and what he came to do. And he identifies the Holy Spirit and the power that he gives. Essentially, what the Apostle Paul is doing is he's writing all four Gospels in six verses as he points out what happened. And it's so awesome to see because we're going to look at identifying these positions and what they produce in the believer when we understand who we are in the Lord. We're going to be reminded of Messiah foretold. Paul calls him not only Christ, but he calls him Jesus Christ. Why is that important? We understand why that's important because it points to the man Jesus who is the Messiah. We're going to be reminded of how Jesus came and why he came. Paul identifies himself and he remembers who he is to the Godhead, to in relation to the Godhead. And this is so important. It's why Paul writes salutations in this way. Very often, if you read his letters, he identifies himself as a bondservant, as a slave to Jesus Christ in chains, in bonds, fulfilling the mission that he's called. And it's a reminder constantly in his mind of who he is in Christ and who God is. And we have to constantly remind ourselves who Jesus is. That's why we gather every week to remind ourselves of who he is. If you think about the Apostle Paul and when he starts his greeting, reminding himself of who he is in the Lord every, every time he writes a letter, I would imagine the Apostle Paul being the type of person to remind himself of who he is every day when he prays to the Lord. Lord, you are my Savior. You're my Redeemer. And we must do that because we have to remind ourselves who's first in our lives. Because every day when we remind ourselves who's first in our lives, when it's God first, everything else aligns. And the Bible tells us that's what will happen. But inevitably, many of us, including myself, when we wake up in the morning, our minds are off in a different direction. And we have to bring ourselves back and say, all right, Lord, I'm already, I'm already off. My heart and mind are already down the road. And I haven't even taken the time just to acknowledge that you're first in my life. So Romans 1 verse 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. There's a lot in here. But identifying positions helps us produce uh, what's in us as believers. The Apostle Paul's heart was to do the Lord's will from the very beginning of his call. And I do not believe that that desire and heart had changed over the years. I believe it grew even more. Remember when he was first called in the book of Acts, we see that the questions that he asked Jesus, he says, who are you, Lord? 
And then, Lord, what do you want me to do? That was his desire. When Jesus is your Lord, you're going to desire to do what he wants you to do. Will there be challenges? Yes. Will there be doubts? Absolutely. Will there be discouragements? Yes. But the Lord sees us through all of those. Those two questions that he asked were answered through Ananias. Remember with me for a moment in Acts chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. The Lord tells Ananias what Paul's calling was. He said, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. What do you think the first thing Paul had to suffer for Jesus' name's sake? His pride. Why? Because he had to go to the Gentiles, and he hated the Gentiles. He even hated the Jews who were converting over to Christianity and was killing them, murdering them in the name of God. And he had to go now to the Gentiles. A man, a Pharisee of Pharisees, thinking these people don't even deserve God. Now he's being sent to them. Have you ever been given a task in your life, a call by God that you just didn't want to do? Maybe it's a friend that, or a family member that the Lord is telling you, you need to share me with them. And you're like, there's no way. They're never going to listen. They're probably turning their backs on me. And the Lord's asking you, but are you willing? Will you, are you willing to give those things up for me? This is what Paul had to do. In his identification in this verse, Paul identifies himself as a bondservant, a doulos, a servant. And in the Hebrew context, it described that servant who willingly commits himself to serve a master that he loves and that he respects. If a slave desired to continue with his master after the year of Jubilee, after he set free in the seventh year, he would have a mark made in the ear, and this mark would signify that he had chosen to remain a slave. So although somebody is made free, he chooses to remain in bondage to that master. And that's what Jesus does. He sets us free, and then we choose to serve him or we choose not to serve him. We find this in Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Let me read that to you. It says, Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself." But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And this was the point Paul was making. I'm this type of bond slave. I was chosen by Jesus Christ. But I also, he set me free, but I also choose to bind myself to him and go into service for him. How important it is to remind ourselves who we are in Christ, who we are to the Lord, and the service that we have chosen to do for the Lord. See, Paul remembered, and he constantly remembered, that he was bought with a price. He was redeemed by Jesus, the kinsman redeemer. We find this in Leviticus chapter 25, 47 through 49. Now if a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich, and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor, sells himself to the stranger or sojourner closest to you, or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him. 
or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him. And that's what the Lord has done. But have we accepted that? That's a big question. And if we have, then are we choosing to serve him as a bondservant? Paul's identifying himself. There's a story told of an African slave in the way in the past whose master was about to slay him, to kill him with a spear. And this chivalrous British traveler thrust out his arm to ward off the blow, and it was pierced by the spear. And as the blood came out and spurred it out all over the place, he demanded the person of the slave, saying he bought him by his suffering. He said, I want him. I paid for him. To this former master, he agreed. And as the latter walked away, the slave threw himself at the feet of this British traveler, and he said, I am now your slave, son of pity. I'll serve you faithfully. And he insisted on accompanying this generous deliverer and took delight in waiting upon him every possible way. What a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He bought us with his blood. And how often we need to remind ourselves of that blood. A slave, he's a slave, purchased out of slavery of sin by the blood of another which was required. And so Paul often writes this way, remembering then his redemption, essentially saying to himself and saying to others when he's writing, Jesus has set me free from sin. I choose to enslave myself to him. And that's something that we have to remember each and every day as we humble ourselves, as we deny ourselves, pick up our cross and go to death, and follow the Lord. It's something that we often need to repeat to ourselves. And then here, he calls himself an apostle, or he's a commissioned man, or he's got, he has delegated authority. It's, it's literally someone commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. And aren't we all, especially in the days that we're living? In the Greek, this means that one who is sent it generally refers to the 12 that were called, and we see that in Mark chapter 3. And as the 12 were sent to the Jews, Paul now being an apostle, he was sent to the Gentiles, as we had just talked about in Acts chapter 9. And so Paul further identifies himself when he says he's separated to the gospel of God, and he's separated to that gospel. And this setting apart did not keep Paul from making tents to support himself and his companions, nor mingling freely with all levels of pagan society. It was a setting apart to something, a commitment and dedication, not from things in isolation like the Pharisees. He separated out to the gospel of God. This is interesting because Pharisee actually means separated one. And the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He called himself that. He told us what he was uh, before. He was a separated one. But the difference is, when they talk about being separated, they isolate and they segregate. And they don't commingle, thinking that that is going to protect them from being stained from sin. But the Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, but his type of separation was separation for religion, and that produced in him to become a life taker because he looked at other people's lives with no value, no empathy, no love, no compassion. If you're not with me, then I don't love you, and you have no value to me. And that's not Jesus' heart. Although Jesus will come in judgment, we're in that age of grace right now where he's demonstrating grace. Others' lives do have value to him. And now the Apostle Paul is separated out for the gospel of Christ, 
And once he was a life taker, and now through the gospel, he's a life giver. Amazing what the Lord has done in this man's life, and he's constantly reminding himself. See, religion makes us look at others in disdain. Not love, not compassion, not empathy. And we have to look at the example of Jesus as he walked on this earth. The desire to preach Christ to anybody and everybody. And not all will listen. We know that. And that's not up to us. And we don't need to worry about the results. We need to be concerned about the call. And leave those things to the Lord. We can't can't isolate ourselves from the world. Or we can try. We can become monks. We can try to isolate ourselves. But it's not about isolating ourselves from the world. We can abstain from being of the world. And there's a difference. Isolation is trying to stay away from something. And it produces in us weakness in our faith. Because if we isolate ourselves from everything, when those challenges do come in the real world, then we'll be shown weak and we may fail. We have to be conditioned. We have to get out there and exercise those things that the Lord has given to us so they become stronger. I began to think about being in construction a long time ago and my brother-in-law being in construction. And I can imagine what goes on in the hallways or when they're building the buildings that they are working on, the kind of things that are being said and talked about with construction workers. And can my brother-in-law take himself out of the environment all the time? No. But there are things that he can do to build himself up in Christ so that he can be a good witness. See, we can't isolate ourselves. A.B. Bruce writes, Personal character may suffer from such isolation. It may lose geniality, tenderness, and grace, and contract something of inhuman sternness. I remember when we used to have those barbecues, those family barbecues, and I, I think when I first got into the Sanchez side of the family, I only went to one, and I remember going... And I was that stern Pharisee type of guy. And I remember my going to my mother-in-law, and she said, what's the matter? And I said, well, man, there's a lot of drinking going on here, and it's just making me uncomfortable. And I was judging everybody for it. And little did I know I would experience those things, same, <laughs> same things later that I had already. And I had that. I wanted to separate and isolate myself, not realizing those people need Jesus too, and they need love too. Man, what the Lord can do if you just deny yourself. You know what's needed in our lives? This theme that has been going on in my life, temperance. Temperance, that's the much more needed virtue in our lives. It's restraint in the face of temptation. And that produces in us, in the Christian, self-denial. And man, that's the hardest thing to do as the Lord works on you. And you think you get to this place where you're just humbling your life before the Lord, and man, He just pinpoints something else out in your life and hits you hard, and then you just think, man, I thought I was dead to this person. But that person is still right there. You think that person's six foot deep? No, right on the surface. You can see sometimes the hands right there. And if you feed that, you build it up, But restraint, temperance in the face of temptation, that produces self-denial. Bruce once again writes, Abstinence is the virtue of the weak. Temperance is the virtue of the strong. Abstinence is certainly the safer way for those who are prone to inordinate affection. But it purchases safety at the expense of moral culture. For it removes us from those temptations connected with family relationships and earthly possessions through which character, while it may be imperiled, is at the same time developed and strengthened. Sometimes we have to go into areas that we don't want to go into to minister. Now be careful that they're not areas that you already want to go 
to indulge in them, thinking that, well, I'm going in to minister, and then you get caught up. We must be careful because that can happen. Temperance in us produces the desire to sacrifice life's dearest enjoyments when called to duty for Christ. When Jesus says, hey, you need to release that because I'm calling you to do this. One of the hardest things to do, especially when I had to sell my Harley. I knew the Lord was telling me to do it, and it took me a long time to do it. When he told us to sell our house, it took a long time to do it. But are we willing to give up life's dearest enjoyments to us for the call of duty for Christ? That was just for me. But what is it for you? What is the Lord calling you? The dearest enjoyments in your life to give up for Him. I don't know if He's telling you anything. Maybe He is, maybe He's not. But are we willing? Those things don't save us. Holding on to those things don't save us. We're already saved if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But does he want to work in your heart even more? Is he sanctifying you? Is he calling you? Man, because let me tell you, once you do give up that enjoyment for the call of Christ, you think to yourself, how did I ever enjoy that? And I enjoy this so much more. It's the craziest thing. But if you're willing, he'll show you that. It's that hundredfold. He gives us back a hundredfold what we gave up. And it may not be what we think. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful for me, but all, and all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And these words, all things are lawful for me, had apparently become a slogan to cloak the immorality of some people in the Corinthian church. The statement was true, but it required qualification. Paul qualified liberty with the principle of love applied to both neighbor and self. Liberty, which was not beneficial but detrimental to someone else, was not loving and was to be avoided. So too, liberty, which becomes slavery, was not love but hatred of self. I will not be mastered by anything. We have to be an integral part of society, but we should be affecting it, not it affecting us. But so often the case is the other way around. And it happens to me. It happens to all of us. And it's just a reminder. And so Paul, separated out of sin, but not out of the world, because he's got to go to the Gentiles. The ones he's told are unclean. I can't touch them. And now he's got to go teach them. He's got to share the gospel to those people he hated. He used to hate. And he had to deny himself for Christ. A disciple of the gospel of God, which is faith in Jesus Christ. So these positions are like Paul's insignia, like on a uniform. It identifies his title, his position, where he's at in God's army. But guess what? That pin on that lapel, there's always somebody higher. And he recognizes that. There's somebody above me. There's somebody in charge of me. There's somebody over me. And I must, when I'm called to duty, I must remember my rank and title in the Lord. And so he positions himself in Christ and by identifying this rank, he can correctly position himself, God first, everything else second. And it, that produces in us the ability to say in every situation that we're in, he's sovereign. This must be his will. If I'm a child of God, I'm, I have to be in his perfect will. He's sovereign. Everything that happens to me is allowed by him. especially if I'm seeking him. Because his word says, if I seek him, I'll find him. If I seek for him, with all, if I search for him with all my heart. But if I'm living my own way, I could be in his permissive will. But I want to be in his perfect will. And he allows everything. He knows nothing surprises him. I want to be in God's will. 
William Carey is a missionary in the 1700s, and he was a shoemaker. He was accused one day of neglecting his business because of his ministerial efforts. And to that accusation, he answered, neglecting my business, my business to, is to extend the kingdom of God. I only cobble shoes to pay expenses. And he used his career to fulfill his ministry. Are you using your role, your position, your work to further the ministry, to extend the kingdom of God? I was asked on Friday to talk about my career at Southlands Christian School as a financial advisor. I got to share with the high schoolers in four different sessions. And one of the things to share that they wanted to share was about how I integrate my faith into my business. And I shared with them how many times I have conversations, not about the folks' money, but more about their lives, what's happening in their lives. And this Friday, I received a call from a good friend, a good client, but a really good friend. And it, over the years, past 20 years, he's had a lot of heart troubles. He has stints in his heart. He's had several open heart surgeries. And he shared with me Friday, and we've talked over the years and prayed together. And he's been in a lot of pain recently, just got out of the hospital again on Friday. He pops pills, those uh, pills that they take for that type of pain. I forget what they're called. Um, he pops them like they're candy, he tells me, just to take the pain away. And the pain's constant. And he said, Larry, they finally told me that the stints are failing. There's nothing that they can do. And I'm literally talking to him. We're crying on the phone. And here's a man who knows. I mean, we all know that we're going to die one day, and it's imminent. We don't know the day or hour, but this guy, he knows he's almost there. could happen. He keeps, kept saying, like a thief in the night, it's going to come. And he was sharing with me. I got to pray with him. But he was sharing with me, Larry, you know it's serious when at 2 in the morning you're in pain and your wife turns over, puts her arms around you, and begins to pray for you and says, Lord, just take him home. Wow. You would think that she's cruel, but I don't look at it that way. Because for a Christian man and a Christian woman who believes in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we know where we're going. And that's where his hope is. See, he understands his position. It's still hard. He still has emotions. He still cries. But he knows where he's going. And he has that peace that surpasses all understanding. And it brings a joy. And what is that joy? Joy is gladness not based on circumstance. Gladness not based on circumstance. We all have something we're going through today but there's always somebody going through so much more and we got to remember we only have today we're not promised tomorrow and i want to have that constant joy don't you find that to be a difficulty i find that to be a difficulty in this life to find the joy in the day when my mind's constantly on issues and problems and what am i going to do and how am i going to take care of this how are we going to move forward here? I just want to have that gladness that's not based on circumstance. Do you want to have that joy? I want to have that joy. And we remember that joy in this order and positions of Paul's greeting. We find our place in Christ, and we can walk through any trial and succeed through any temptation. As the Redeemer of Israel says in Isaiah 43, 1 and 2, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the fire scorch you. Hey, I'm not going to take you out of the world right now. You're going to have to walk in it, but I'm going to be with you. I'm going to walk with you. Huh. Man, the Lord walks with us. Awesome. I love that picture. Many times, man, I want him to carry me. Just carry me. 
I just want you to carry me, Lord. Just lift up my feet. Let the Holy Spirit guide and lead me. Because when I set my feet down and try to go, man, I go all over the place. I'm over here, I'm over here, I'm over here. But man, if we just let the Lord carry us, He makes us lie down in green pastures. He makes, makes us walk beside still waters. What a beautiful picture. Verse 2, it says, Which He promised before through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. You and I, we spend a lot of time defining these titles and ranks of Paul, but it defines our ranks and titles as well. There's a lot he's talking about in just these few words. And right after this, Paul seems to begin to fade, and then he presents to us God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they take center stage. And there's little of Paul and a lot of Jesus. See, we tend to teach this all the time about Paul, who Paul is, what he's doing, who he's talking to, who the Romans were. But man, he, in these first few verses, is why I wanted to talk about this. He points to Jesus. He just points to the Lord. Makes it very simple. He's taking all four Gospels and packing it in right here. And he's telling these guys the truth about who God is, who Jesus is, who the spirit of power is. And this is what happens when we often remember how the Lord has arrested us. Remember what, how the Lord arrested him on the road to Damascus. And when we remember how he arrests us, when we pray and we're thankful and we talk to the Lord, I share with the Lord every time I begin to pray, most of the time in my private time, it's Lord, thank you. Jesus, that you've made a way into the throne room. Thank you for your blood shed for me. It's not a repetitive prayer. It's a prayer of remembrance to me. And I wonder if you often remember those things. Because, see, we're set apart for the gospel of God like he is. And what's the gospel of God? The good news of salvation through Messiah. But it's not just Messiah. He's pointing out that it was Jesus the man who died on the cross, he's telling them, remember that? Remember what happened not too long ago, as we'll get into next week? But he's telling them, remember what happened. It wasn't that Messiah has not come. He came in Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. He didn't just say Messiah. He says Jesus Christ. Because it's Jesus who is the Messiah. And Paul reminds him of the proof once more. How? He's telling us through this whole thing that Jesus is foretold in the scriptures throughout the Holy Scriptures by the prophets. See, you got to remember, they didn't have these letters. They didn't have the whole New Testament. We do. They had the Old Testament scriptures. To them, it wasn't even Old Testament. They were the Holy Scriptures, and they still are. They still are. Paul's reminding them that everything was foretold in the scriptures. Scriptures that were written like 750 years beforehand. The portraits of Christ, especially in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Scriptures like Isaiah 11.10, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. We just talked about his resting place and how it was glorious. The empty tomb. In Micah 5.2, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Bethlehem, King David is born there. And then later, the lineage of Jesse and David, Jesus, the Messiah. This is the Christmas story. Every day it's Christmas story. 
It's not just once a year. Isaiah 43, 19 says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Reminders to them that he's going to be doing a new thing. And when I pass over this scripture, a new thing, the Lord seems to be doing a new thing in my life. I just read this in my own devotions in Isaiah 43. And I'm reminded the Lord's doing a new work here. And that seems to happen all the time. The last time I read it was when we were moving to Calvary Chapel Laverne. But now that we're back here, he's reminding me in the verse before that, in Isaiah 43, 18, it says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. I don't want to do what we were doing. I want to do what he wants to do here. I do care about what's going on over there. I do love those people over there. But I can't be there. I have to be here. We want to be everywhere all the time. But we have to stay in our place. I heard about a football coach who was being frustrated with his line and his blockers. And what he did was he drew a square around each one and told him, you do not move from there. Anybody who comes into your territory, you hit them. But you don't move. You stay in your position. And man, must we learn that in our Christian life? What position has he placed us in? Because I tell you what, you could be on the internet, you could be on Facebook, you could be on social, any social media platform and look at what everybody else is doing and say, oh, I want to do that. I want to go over here. I want to go over there. I want to look like that. But what does the Lord have us to do here? You know, I'm looking over here the other night. We're over here building this. And there are a ton of kids after school coming from Roland High School to this boba place right here. A lot. And they're hanging out. Did you know right below us, there's this little area where we could put some grass, we could put some chairs, we could put some lights, we could have a worship night. I mean, on a Friday night, this place is packed. Tons of kids out here from the neighborhood. And I thought, man, what kind of outreach could we do right here. And if I'm looking everywhere else, what's going on at this church and that church, I'm going to miss the opportunities that the Lord is giving us right here. And so I begin to pray, Lord, what do you want us to do? Don't remember the former things. Consider and don't consider the things of old. I want to do a new thing. How many of them don't know Jesus Christ? Isn't that what we're here to do? What a foundation Paul's laying for the church once more, a reminder that the story has not changed. Essentially beginning again at the foundation, stripping everything down to the basics as a reminder. And he does it very often. A reminder of the new work that we have in Christ. What a great reminder. Paul, The Apostle Paul is brilliant here. Verse 3, again, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So he's reminding of how Jesus came. Jesus came in the flesh. Why is that important? Because we need to remember who he is. Jesus is the seed of David according to the flesh. We just talked about that but he's further Emmanuel, God with us. And so Paul in his brilliance is referencing the Emmanuel prophecy and reminding the church of the Davidic covenant, further proving once again who Jesus is, what he came to do, and again, shoring up the walls of our faith. You would think reading these verses, oh yeah, Jesus is the Christ, okay, Paul's salutation, he's a bondservant, blah, blah, blah. We see this all the time with the Apostle Paul. But when you really break it down and look at what he's claiming here and what he's saying here, he's reminding of who he is. And don't you think that would flood into the minds and hearts of these people who understand exactly what he's saying? And that's what we need to remember. That's what we need to break down because it shores up those walls of our faith and it reminds us, you know what? These aren't just stories. You know what? I don't just come to church because it's the Sunday thing to do. 
I come to be reminded, to be reminded of the Lord Jesus Christ of who I follow, to be reminded that I need to continue to follow him. In Matthew 1, and 23, it says, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Matthew, talking about Isaiah chapter 7, referencing an Old Testament prophecy, saying to us that Jesus is God with us. God in flesh. God incarnate. And he talks about the Davidic covenant. We find the Davidic covenant in several places. First Chronicles 17, 11 through 14. We find it in 2 Samuel 7. Verse 13 says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 2 Samuel twenty two fifty one says, He is the tower of salvation to his king, shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. Jesus is calling them the seed of David because he's reminding them who Jesus is. He's the prophesied one. He's the Emmanuel. He's God with us. We see further portraits in the genealogies of Matthew and Luke. Luke's genealogy moves backwards from Jesus to Adam. Matthew's moves forward from Abraham to Joseph. Some trying to disprove have claimed discrepancies with the genealogies. There are three of them. We'll just talk about one. If Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit and not Joseph, how is Jesus in the line? How is Joseph in the line? Through adoption? Some would say through adoption. But Hebrew culture was said not to recognize adoption at that time. So what, how do we reconcile this? In both Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, Mary is not mentioned at all. But we know she's in the family of Elizabeth. We know that Elizabeth has a relationship with the line. And in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that Joseph is the son of Jacob. But in Luke's gospel, it tells us that Joseph is the son of Heli. And it can't be both. See, Joseph's name was inserted in Luke's gospel on behalf of Mary's name. And it puts him in the line. And Moses established a precedence for what's called the inheritance substitution. And he does that in Numbers 27, 1 through 11. Therefore, it demonstrates that Jesus is in the genealogy. And it shows his deity and his humanity. You can't disprove it. It's proven through these genealogies. Matthew, as John Phillips writes, shows Christ's connection with the Hebrew race. He underlines the fact that Jesus was the true Messiah, the son of David and the promised king. Luke shows us Christ's connection with the human race. He underlines the fact that Jesus was a true man. Both sides. Matthew traces the ancestry of Jesus through his foster father, Joseph, the husband of Mary. And he follows the main ancestral line back through some 20 kings to David. He traces the Lord's lineage back through Solomon to show that Jesus was a legal heir to David's throne. Now Luke traces the ancestry of Jesus through the Virgin Mary, and he follows a subsidiary line of descent, forgotten but not unbroken, back to Nathan, another of David's sons. It was, it was King David's older brother. And so he shows that Jesus was lineal heir to David's throne. And what is he doing here? He's showing us Jesus' humanity and his deity at the same time. All of that power in these few verses, compacting all of the Gospels into six verses here. Jesus' humanity and deity, they are essential to the Christian faith. They're essential to your walk with the Lord. According to John the Beloved, this is the most crucial test of orthodox faith in Christianity. Why? Because it tells us in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, Beloved, 
Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Pretty simple. Breaks it down. Very simple. And that's how we test what's true, what's not. You see, the word for declared here is the Greek for horizon. And it's like you can distinguish horizon from the earth. And just as the horizon serves as a clear demarcation line dividing earth and sky, the resurrection of Jesus Christ clearly divides him from the rest of humanity, providing irrefutable evidence that he is the Son of God. Amazing what he's breaking down. Now he says Son of God was a title for Jesus Christ. He says the same essence of God. And in the spirit of holiness, uh, voluntarily submits himself to the will of God. And it was his resurrection from the dead that was the true victory, which we talked about last week, over death and hell. This was sealed. It was done. It was conclusive evidence. He just took us again through the Gospels. And so whether Jew or Greek, Paul makes the case for Christ. Not just that Messiah had come, that Jesus is the Messiah. That prophets foretold he would come and how he would come and through the line that he would come through. And Jesus was the physical object that they all painted beforehand and he is that picture come to life. And all this is doing is reminding everybody of that. And we're reminded of why he came as we finish up here in verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you were also the called of Jesus Christ. Jesus came that we might receive grace. And his grace through faith in him as the Lord and Savior. It is he that initiates that relationship. He calls us to himself. Did anybody here start chasing after the Lord? Or was it the Holy Spirit convicting you and chasing after you? I don't remember chasing after the Lord. I remember him chasing me. I remember him trying to push him, try, me trying to push him away. And I still do at times. Do you? Maybe you don't. But that flesh, what I find in my members, must be denied. And this is the great reminder of our salvation through Jesus Christ. We didn't seek him. He sought us. Isaiah 65, 1 says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. And I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Paul quotes this in Romans chapter 10 the chapter that has been called the doctrine of no difference. Because there's no difference in today, in the age of grace, between Jew and Gentile. The promise of salvation is for us all. And before Paul begins going into Christian living, as we will see in this dynamic book, I mean, we're going to be challenged. I'm going to be challenged as I study and teach it, and we're all going to be challenged to live it in these chapters. And now he once again lays down the foundation of our great faith. And what a great way to begin. To begin a book. That's why I'm excited about it because what a great way for us to launch out again as a church after a year or so being, uh, of being out of the area and laying once again this foundation being reminded. But just briefly... Because now we're going to get into some meat. Now we're going to dive deep. And for those of us who have been here any amount of time, I know that you're at a place where we can do that. And in just a few short verses, he goes through the Gospels again. The essentials of the faith. 
And now he will expound upon them. And it's what we have to do very often because it reminds us of our position in Christ and our relationship and position with one another. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for a reminder. I'm excited, Lord, about going through Romans. And I thank you, Father, for the reminder right now of just what you've done, where we've been, who you are, who we are in relationship to you, putting into practice proper perspectives. Lord, putting into practice proper hearts and minds. Lord, when we remember our rank, our position in you, we remember not only who we are, but we remember who you are. And we remember who you are, Lord, everything else aligns correctly. And we have to remind ourselves often, Lord, because we're forgetful. And Jesus, we need to be filled. We need to be filled with your Holy Spirit. So baptize us, strengthen us. As we go out in this week, Lord, go with us. Walk beside us, carry us. And Holy Spirit, guide and lead us, Lord, into all truth. Your word is truth. Help us to find our feet underneath us, Lord. Widen the paths of our feet, as your word says. And may we walk in truth with you each and every day. And Lord, we thank and praise you now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. All right.